Welcome to episode 193 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I've definitely jumped in the bandwagon. You know, the one where entrepreneurs are all trying to press forward during this crisis. The one where we're all in the process of pivoting our businesses to remain relevant. Over the last seven or so weeks, I've managed to make that pivot from working with event organizers on their live events to helping a wide range of people improve their virtual events. It didn't feel like a huge leap, but it has taken a considerable amount of focus, energy, and effort. I've heard from several clients and friends that they just can't. They don't have it in them to push, push, push right now. Going full steam ahead doesn't feel right to them. Which is a hard place to be when we're all surrounded with these messages about leveraging, leading, pivoting. And you know what? That's okay. If we are not being true to ourselves, we will not be in the right headspace to do right by our business. It's like you're trying to convince yourself to surf the wave when you don't feel like getting wet. It just doesn't work. So you have permission to veg. Do whatever would rejuvenate you because we're going to need each other for the long haul. This isn't going to be just one big wave. It's going to be a couple of years of ups and downs. So we all should probably be more like you, thoughtful about what we're committing energy to right now. Your challenge this week. If you don't feel called to go all in on your business right now, breathe. There will be opportunities that reveal themselves in due time. For now, take care of yourself, whatever that looks like. Netflix, be present with your family, bake, read those books stacked by your bed, nap. Know that you know you best. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest is on a mission to disrupt the way we approach empowerment. A lifelong entrepreneur, she is the founder and CEO of Imperia, an incubator for women creating social impact projects across seven continents. Her methodology of self-directed empowerment is showcased in her keynotes around the world from Abu Dhabi to Harvard University and the United Nations. And she's a featured expert on women's entrepreneurship for the U.S. State Department. When she isn't on stage, she's at Imperia's headquarters atop the World Trade Center in New York City, where she and her team have dedicated themselves to building resilient female leaders. She's the author of two books. Her most recent is No One Is Coming, an Empowerment Manifesto. And she's been featured in international media, including Bloomberg, Business Week, and the documentary Eat, Drink, Cook. Please join me in welcoming Jennifer Yanolo. Hi, Robbie. How are you? Jennifer, I'm so thrilled to have this conversation with you. Thank you for joining us from your undisclosed location (laughs) north of New York City. You are, you're like in a little bunker with your extended family, riding (laughs) out the coronavirus. This is a fun, interesting time to be alive. So as you know, the, the context of this, this conversation, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm all about networking and building strong relationships, but the context has always been around leadership because, you know, people don't achieve success in a vacuum. And so tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? 
Well, you know, it's really interesting. I'll answer the second part first. Um, because I, it was unexpected for me. I was actually in college and someone came up to me and just said, you know, you're just always leading the charge. And I always feel so confident that you're going to get things done. And I was like, me, (laughs) why me? And, you know, when I was younger, um, I heard the word bossy a lot. Right. So I was bossy. Um, but then a few years ago, my, my late mother gave me the nickname, get the job done, Jen. And, and I, so like with all of those things coming together, I kind of realized like it, it's just part of my DNA. Um, you know, sometimes leadership is cultivated. Sometimes it's just woven into your tapestry. I seem to be the latter. Um, but it was not something I consciously developed until I realized I had something there. Right. So, so I think leaders can both be born and made. Um, and then the other thing is with, with leadership, you know, particularly right now, you know, we, we are in an unprecedented time in the world's history when, um, yes. So we've got this virus that is very frightening for a lot of people. It impacts every aspect of life. But what I've been saying to a lot of people in the last week is that this is the time to think about how you want to be remembered. How do you want to look, when you look back a year from now, how do you want to be remembered as someone involved in this moment in the world? You know, do you want to be recognized as the person who really stood up and and was helpful? Um, You know, do you want to be the kind of company that laid everybody off and said, good luck? Um, Or do you want to hang in there with your employees? Like there, there are, it's a really it's a watershed moment here. And so leadership is, is really about character, right? It's about who you are when things are really, really difficult. So it's, it's really interesting that that's our particular topic of conversation today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's true. You know, the stories that will be told about the moments of now and the, and and that now is not actually just a moment. It's, it's going to be months and years of this moment of, of feeling the effects of it. Right. But then, yeah, there are stories that will be told. And, and do you want to be the person who was seen as the, as the leader stepping up and leadership really is interesting these days because it is lots of little ways and big ways, right? Like you said, it's, it's kind of a showing up piece of it. It's a showing it's a, that's exactly it. Right. Do you yeah. want to be the person hoarding the toilet paper or do you want to be the person who hands that other pack to the person behind you and says, Hey, I know you need this too. Right. So leading can also be taking part in a community, right? It's not necessarily being in charge. It's showing up as someone who is comforting others and saying, we're going to be all right. Let's do this together. So, you know, I I think a lot of people misunderstand what leadership really is. Mm. I would love to dig into the bossy. I (laughs) I really do. So Jennifer, uh, I'm, I'm, this is not a new term for me that's thrown at young, young girls, but I, I'm so curious about what your life was like when you're on the playground. You know, why do you think that was a term that was used for you? What were your actions and what were your intentions around those actions at that time? Like, how were you thinking of yourself? Forget how other people were labeling yeah. you, but how were you thinking of yourself in those moments? Well, you know, I uh, first I'll tell you how my second grade teacher captured it because I found this report card <laughs> a couple of years ago when I was cleaning out some things and it said... Jennifer is a natural leader, but it takes some patience and tolerance on her part. (laughs) And so what I think she meant there is that I was very impatient with other people who weren't so quick to catch up. Um, And it took a lot for me to not be 
snotty about that. Like, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. You know, what are you waiting for? Why are you not on this, this reading level? And here, I know how to tie your shoes. Let me do it. So, um, so it, it, it kind of, I felt very alone. I remember being on the playground and feeling very apart. Um, because I had, a, I, and I was, I was kind of way too old for my age, you know, really kind of an old, little old lady. Um, so that gregariousness was not present on the playground. So I was always thinking about problems and, and solutions. And so it was kind of lonely. And then later on, it was more like, I see the best way to do things. So just do what I'm doing. What don't, don't question me, just do it. Uh, you know, that plays out in a lot of different ways. <laughs> I have changed and evolved over time, but it started out as an impatience. Like, why can't everybody else see the world the way I see it? And why can't they get up to speed quickly? Um, so that was really tough, actually. That was hard. Yeah, to be a kid. yeah no, I could see that. And, and it's funny because I, I could relate in a lot of ways. You know, um, I ask this question of every guest and it, whenever they share a story, I always flash back to my own moments in the playground. And um, I, I think that, when you know what's going on and others haven't figured it out yet, it, it can feel like a really lonely place because you, you're like, but really, you can't see that? And of course, uh, there are diplomatic, I guess I'll use the word diplomatic, dip- diplomatic ways <laughs> to educate people and bring them on board and help them see the shared vision. And that's what growth is. <laughs> Definitely. Right? Oh, like, yeah. It's the same thing we do when we're like in second, third, and sixth grade it won't work. We realize as adults, as much as we were like, <laughs> wish that it would. And people yeah. who try it are not seen as good leaders, right? So, no. um, that, what was that evolution like for you? Did you ever try to run for official office or have any kind of formal leadership role, like in, in high school and college, like as, as you started to see that that was your potential? Yeah, I mean, in high school, I was, you know, vice president of my class. Um, we didn't really do a whole lot. We did the prom, so there wasn't much to do. Uh, when I was in college, I started getting involved in entrepreneurship groups. So that was way before entrepreneurship was cool. But we were the kind of weirdos who weren't doing marketing clubs, so we wanted something else to do. And, you know, we we took a school store that was almost bankrupt and turned it around in three months. We built a team. We you know, pared down inventory. Like we, so, so through entrepreneurship is how I discovered that. But even then, I mean, with my first, um, first like formal company company with my business partner a few years ago, which was culinary media network. So we created the world's first food podcast channel. And, you know, we had a staff of writers, we had show hosts, we had all kinds of things and it became known to me that um, I was very dictatorial in the way I quote unquote led. And, you know, sometimes I'd make writers cry because I'd say like, what is this? This is not up to our standards. How, you know, I can't do anything with this. The way that I presented criticism was quite terrible. And so, you know, it wasn't until I made my actual business partner cry that I realized maybe I need to change my approach just a little. Um, and for me, it was developing really radical empathy for other people and realizing that you can't always come at leadership from an intellectual perspective of here is X, Y, and Z, let's get it done. I don't care about your feelings. You actually need to care about people's feelings. Um, not to the point of being, you know, coddling or any of that, but, 
but humanity matters. You know, it's not just cogs. It's not just chess pieces. They're real people you're dealing with. And once I switched that, um, my entire life changed, right? So, you know, the way that people come to me to work with me, the way that I interact with the world is drastically different. So I like the idea of the radical empathy because it makes me stop myself before I'm ready to criticize. I have to stop and think about that for a minute. Like, what is life like for this person? And um, it does change a great deal about how you interact with the world. Man, radical empathy. What a, I mean, it's a powerful phrase, powerful even more so when you're living it. One of the things I was thinking about as you are saying that is that I learned recently the idea that everyone is doing their best. Yeah, yeah. And if you believe that- You're better than others. <laughs> if you believe that as far as they're concerned, this is the best they could do and you start from there and then you help them get better, it serves them and you more than uh, just being like, what? What is this? I can't believe you gave me this. This just doesn't fit. This is awful, you know, uh, because they wouldn't have shown it to you if they didn't think it was their best. <laughs> and the other thing, too, is, you know, I, I thought about this. So my mom passed away in November, which is a few months ago. And in that process, it occurred to me that, you know, when you're grieving, you don't really care about the rest of the world, right? You're in your own pit of despair. And it suddenly occurred to me, like, you feel like you want to have a neon sign over your head that says, listen, I am grieving right now. You need to go easy on me. Just give me a break today. And it wasn't until that happened to me that I realized, wow, I wonder how many people I've interacted with that I was critical of that they might've been going through something very painful. And so it had me stop for a second and go back to that phrase that everyone's fighting their own battle. Um, and you don't know what it is on a given day in a given moment. And you do, you have to stop and just take account of that. Like this person might be having, going through a terrible divorce. You know, the person that you cut off in line might have just, you know, lost a child. Like you just don't know. And so it's giving people room to be human. It really comes down to that all the time is giving people room to just be human beings. That's, uh, you know, permission to be human. Sorry, I should say that again. Permission to be human, which is a phrase that I've learned from friends who do positive psychology. Yeah. Right? Like, it's such yeah. a helpful way to think about it. Um, mm -hmm. So you you had entrepreneurship, it feels like, in your bones. In my bones, <laughs> definitely. Um, you were telling me, actually, before we got on air, that it's something that you, your family, a lot of entrepreneurs in your family as well, right? So it didn't, it didn't seem out of, out of nowhere that you suddenly... Uh, we're going to do that. So when you're thinking about going out and doing your own thing, what was challenging about it? Since it wasn't unheard of in your family to do this, <clears throat> what was the challenge for you? Well, you know, it's interesting. So my, my parents are immigrants. So I'm a first generation American. So I was given this context by my father, who was from Southern Italy, Mussolini's Italy, World War II, right? When he came here, he said, if I don't have my dreams, what do I have? So for me, it was like, okay, how do I take this sort of dreamer mentality and turn it into something? Um, and then my mother, you know, growing up in World War II, so I had, my father grew up under Mussolini and my mother under Churchill. <laughs> so I had a really interesting dynamic there in the household. And she was more of the, you know, stiff upper lip, get the job done, you know, all that kind of thing. So it was taking, distilling those two things 
do those two major characteristics and taking them out into the world in a place where entrepreneurship is not the safe option, right? They panicked a little bit because they're like, we came here, you've done all this schooling. Why are you not going to be a doctor, lawyer, whatever? Mm-hmm. What do you mean you're going to start a business? Like you could have done that without all the schooling, <laughs> right? Um, so it was really, the hardest part was convincing them that this was a legitimate thing I could do. Because the other business owners in my family, they're like, they're more practical things like building or, you know, um, business services or things like that. And here I am like, I'm going to, you know, start a culinary company. And they're like, what are you talking about? So, so it was having to prove to them that this was legit, that I could do this. Um, and then look, I've, I've failed a couple of times. Um, and that's just what that looks like. But I guess having them understand that I'm going to be okay. I can always go get a job if I have to, right? Um, and it took a while to get them on board with that. But but once they understood it, now they see me as well. Like you really went for it. You really had the courage to go do your thing. And now they see me fly around the world and they're like, okay, so you did that. <laughs> right. You weren't a doctor, but you fly around the world. That's good. But you just drag raced in Abu Dhabi. So there you go, right? Yeah. So- <laughs> You mentioned a moment ago that you have it hasn't been one success after another. You've had a few missteps. And yet the way you were describing that even was that's just how things are. Like there's a certain as attitude that you have around that. That's that's very interesting because I think a lot of people, you know, hit a roadblock and it derails them. Mm-hmm. Who helps you cultivate that spirit, that perseverance, that like I believe in me and like make that a reality for you. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's actually, um, it was from my greatest failure. Uh, I don't know that I want to even call it a failure though. My greatest, um, pothole, (laughs) right? So, so in the middle of this great culinary life that I had, where I was traveling the world and interviewing chefs and drinking champagne, I got really, really sick. I burned out and my immune system just went nuts. And so I developed all these food intolerances. So when you have a food career and you're allergic to a lot of food, that doesn't really work. So in one fell swoop, I had to stop my whole life. And I was at the peak of my career. So it was in in feeling sorry for myself, trying to figure out what to do next, that I had to reframe my entire outlook on life. And it really comes down to my mother. You know, I, I asked myself, what would my mother do right now? And you know, she grew up with bombs falling around her house. She'd pick herself up, dust herself off and figure out something else. And so I just started looking at what could the world look like if I stood up in this moment? What could I contribute to other people's lives out of this moment? And I came up with this theory of self-directed empowerment, the idea that no one is coming right now to help you. So who are you going to be to stand up now and make a difference in your life and the lives of other people? And what's going to pull you out of bed when you're feeling like crap to actually stand up and deliver something to the world. So it really comes down to my mother. It always comes down to my mother and the kind of person that she was and and what she instilled in me. But it was that it's like, okay, it's time to rock and roll. What are we doing? What's next? So anytime that, that, that things have gotten tough, it's knowing that no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay because I have me. And that's really the core of all of it. It's so powerful. And having that portrait of resilience in your mother and to learn from her lived history 
And when you said, you know, dust herself off, I mean, quite literally, perhaps quite after literally. bombs were falling, right? I, I got a visual of that. So, I mean, I think that resilience is something you can only earn, yes. not learn. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> I remember when I was learning about um, suicide prevention, that the, the rate of suicide amongst um, middle-aged and older white men is quite high when they, you know, they sort of hit a moment in life, they lose their job, they lose like connection, they don't have like social networks and they don't have any resilience because they've kind of been given a lot of stuff along they the kinda, way. Yeah, you exactly. Know? And so um, it, it's kind of great to hear how you've been able to channel all of your, you know, everything you've lived through and had that like pick yourself up moment. What, and, and the question I love too, what could I create? If I were to stand up in this moment, what could I offer? What what could I bring forth? And that's a question of believing in the value of your help you have, right? Like yeah. inherently, this may not have worked, but I have value. That's Absolutely. really amazing. Like that's a I'm loving knowing you because it's so powerful. <laughs> but I think other people could learn from that. Like when you hit that moment of that major pothole, <laughs> you know, major, pot- major pothole. yeah. Well, you know, and it's interesting you bring up suicide. Um, you know, I did, I lost a brother to that when he was very young, you know, he was in his twenties. And one of the other things that stuck with me through life is that, okay, he, he couldn't like with his mental health issues, he just couldn't manage it anymore. But losing him that way, also in that pothole moment actually gave me that extra resilience. Like I'm not checking out right now because I know what that looked like. I know what it did to my family and I know what it did to my mother. And knowing that that has happened, how can I not do that? How can I pick a different route? Because I'll tell you, there were days that were really bad. Like my physical health was really, really bad. My depression from being sick, um, where it would have been very easy to just check out. And I thought, no, well, that's been done in my family. So let's not do that again. And let's, you know, what's the next step? What's the next road through? And it's, it's really that defining moment of, I would say to myself, you know what? We're going to go to bed tonight. Tomorrow is another day. Let's just give it a night's sleep and tomorrow we'll think of something else. And so I would do that one day at a time. I would just get a good night's sleep. We'll tackle it again tomorrow. And that's how you build that resilience. It's not giving up in that moment when things seem so desperate and awful. You just hang in there one more day, one more minute if you have to. Um, But that's how you build that muscle. It's a muscle is all resilience is. And when you, uh, how long ago did you start doing the current business model that you have? How long has this been? It's been about, what year is it? (laughs) It's 2020. So it's been about eight years. That's amazing. Okay. Wow. So it's been a while. So it's it's been a little while and you've iterated, I imagine uh, along the way what you thought it was going to be and what it's become, right? I don't know what I thought it was going to (laughs) be. It's pretty funny, right? People always like overnight success, right? 10 years in the making. Oh, it's the longest damn night ever. (laughs) It's a long night. It's a really long night. Yeah, that's really overnight. (laughs) Really long night. Yeah. So um, in in all those years, plus the career that you, paths that you had before that, yeah, um, the many pivots, um, uh, now I'm thinking Jenny Blake, but all the pivots that have happened in the world. Um, she got a good book on that. We'll put that in the show notes too, just for a good effect. So you've met just amazing people. You have, you have connected with, engaged with, worked with, helped, served. So 
the way I think about networks is that you have your like your closest circle, you know, of friends and family, um, many of whom are around you right now, <laughs> hunkered down, really in the same hunkered down with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. So, but then there's like that second and third tier out, the people that maybe you see annually at a conference or you worked with five years ago, or um, you just, you just have enjoyed, but you have never had a real reason to work with them. So it could be online community members you've gotten to talk to. I mean, you and I actually had a conversation online and we both walked away forgetting that we didn't actually do the interview. Isn't that funny? That is like, I was like, didn't I already interview you? And you're like, didn't you? (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> Those are the kind of cool connections. So what are your habits, philosophies, or practices around nurturing and sustaining those sort of outer circle, the second and third layer circles of people in your world? Well, you know, it's really interesting. So like I said, I've been going through a lot of grieving these past few months. You know, I've lost two close family, two immediate family members. And when that happens, you know, I close ranks. Like I, my nearest and dearest are like five people. Um, aside from my family. And so as I'm sort of coming back to life, I'm thinking about, wow, there are all these other, other people that I care about and want to talk to. And, and so I've started doing outreach because you have to maintain that. Now, thankfully right now, everyone's at home. So Facebook is an easy way to do that, right? Just hop on live and, and you can connect with people. But I did that two days ago And I had a few people I haven't talked to in forever say, oh, it's so nice to see your face, you know, because I've been absent for months. And so it's really um, what I try to do is kind of keep a running tab of like, okay, have I checked in with my people lately? Like, what have I done lately? Is it, you know, even if it's posting something funny on Facebook or inviting people to celebrate, like, what are your wins this week? You know, we'll do like, flaunt it Friday where we'll talk about what people are really proud of because I don't do humble brags. I think that's just crazy. Um, why be humble about it? Right. So, so I do things like that. Um, I'm actually looking at this right now in this moment, right. Where everyone's kind of siloed. Um, this is a great time to experiment with these things. So I'm thinking of doing some free group coaching calls for those outer tiers of people who might need some help right? Um, they just need to, to sign, kind of share ideas. I have a brainstorm that I do with some women, you know, we call it lady business. And uh, just to make fun of that term, and we get together once a quarter and we, we share ideas and support. Um, so I have sort of these different pockets of things that I do. And then, you know, when I'm up for it, I'll do in-person stuff too, like, you know, happy hours and things like that. So I, I, I try to vary it. Sometimes I'll go to a museum with a friend on a Friday, you know, or have lunch in the park or, so I try to incorporate my own get out of the houseness, um, with connecting. I love that. Do you have an actual list of people that you're keeping track of, or is it just sort of a um, mental list? It's sort of a mental list. Um, and it's, it's one of the ways I find social media to be helpful. Like if I pop on Twitter, let's say, and I see some people in my feed, I haven't thought of in forever, I'll reach out and say hi. So I kind of, I do it randomly generated, if you will. Um, but I think it's really, you know, there there are so many touch points that it can easily be exhausting. Um, and I try not to let it be exhausting. So I'll do it in pockets. Yeah. One of the things I've been experimenting with is those randomly generated like opportunities. Yeah. One, 
being wired to look for them because not all people are. So seeing them and then instead of just like, let's say I was on Twitter and I saw someone instead of just tweeting at someone thinking about what other medium that I could use yeah. and the more personal and more one-to-one, the better to reach out to them. And so a simple thing is when people, like I learn about their birthdays through Facebook or LinkedIn, I send them a private message or I send them a text or I call them. Imagine that yeah. I've called people and yeah. it blows people's minds. Like, especially people I'm not close with, you know, that I'm like, well, I actually got this from a guest like two years ago. He said, I said, well, how do you track people? He's like, well, you know, you can't, you can't actually stay close in touch with everyone. So he's like, I do something that I don't know. He's like, I'm a little ashamed of this, but he looks at his Facebook birthday list and he either sends them a private message or he removes them. <laughs> and I'm like, that's brilliant. So I've been sort of doing that. And I'm like, if I don't know you well enough to leave a message for you. Like, if I'm going, who is this person? Yeah, why are we connected? Yeah. <laughs> why are we connected? Who is this person? I totally, agree. I totally agree. And it's funny because I've been paying more attention because I'm nearing the 5,000 limit. Yeah. And so now it's like, ooh, I really need to start thinking about that because I know way more people I want to invite than than, sure. than 500 people or whatever's left. So, um, and what some people listening are like, there's a limit? <laughs> It's like, yes, there is. <laughs> so really. All you have 200 friends. There is actually an upper limit. I know. Yeah. So I, I'm curious about your travel um, itinerary and how you utilize your travel to stay connected with people. And is travel still part of your business? Well, it was. <laughs> Until recently. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, the fourth quarter of last year, I traveled like 60,000 miles. So okay. um yeah, because I was speaking in Abu Dhabi, Greece, Finland. I was all over the place. Um, you know, it's really tough because you have these moments, right? So if I speak to an audience and we connect afterwards, you have that moment with them. And then everybody goes back to their lives, right? And you try to stay in touch, but it's really difficult. Um, that's hard to do. But, you know, thankfully with social media, I can still do some of that. But it really, I find it, there are people who are such road warriors that they keep their normal schedule and workload while they're on the road. I'm not that person. Um, I have to be fully focused on what I'm doing while I'm on the road because if I don't, my health could suffer. So I, I pretty much unplugged from everything else while I'm on the road. Um, mm -hmm. So I may not be the best person to ask that, but it's like, I, I just try to do whatever I can to stay connected. It doesn't always work. You know, I wish I was better at it. Um, do you ever like organize like a happy hour when you're in San Francisco and tell I your do. friends show up? Yes. That is the one thing I found. And I learned this from other people is that, you know, when you travel to somewhere, there's 15 people saying, Hey, let's have a drink. And I've learned to just gather and I go one place and tell everybody just come here. Um, so I did definitely get that from other travelers and speakers. I learned that, uh, and it's super smart. One of the things that I have not uh, quite figured out, I don't travel quite as much, but um, and I tend to go to the same places for repeat visits, but I love it when people figure out, you're going to be in Chicago, yeah. I'm going to be in Wisconsin. Wait, that's actually not that far. Meet in Milwaukee. We never see each other. Let's... Yeah. If you fly out of Milwaukee or I fly out of O'Hare, like we can connect. And to think, I mean, these are people who like ordinarily are on different coasts and they're like, well, we're within a few hundred miles of each other. Like, let's figure this out. And there are other people who could be in, in let's say, San Francisco and just not have thought ahead of time at all about the fact that they already have friends in San Francisco. 
that they could be seeing. Like some people are so good at it that they like make it work even when it's super inconvenient (laughs) and challenging and other people just don't think about it. For me, the most challenging part is I don't, I don't do a lot of domestic travel. My travel is to like Finland uh, where I know no one while I do now, but I go to places where I haven't been before most of the time for my travel. So it's not very easy. Like now I have friends in Kathmandu. I have friends in Abu Dhabi ready for a girls night out when I get back there. Um, So there are things like that. uh, But I don't often go to cities where my people are or Mm. my friends are. So that's hard. But I did have a friend who was flying. Thankfully, being in New York, everybody comes through town. Um, And I did have a friend where I took the subway to the airport to have breakfast with her because I hadn't seen her in years. So it's like you have to make the effort sometimes. That's really sweet. Uh, A friend of mine, Michelle Tillis Letterman, who wrote a book called The Connector's Advantage, which we'll put a link in the show notes. I came into New York City and she's in New Jersey. She took the train had a meal with me and then got back on the train and went back home because that was what she had time for. And I felt, it's funny, I've gone, I mean, gone to city zillions of times. I felt the most received (laughs) of any time, you know, usually you land and you're like, okay, I'm here. What do I, oh, I got to go somewhere. I got to get on a subway. Yeah. She was like, I'll meet you at the diner around the corner from Penn Station. And it was just like, boom. So it's just really funny how those little efforts really add up. I'm actually thinking that if you're going to these far-flung places, sending postcards from Abu Dhabi or Greece. Like go with that in mind with a handful of addresses and some, you know, figure out the stamp plan when you're there. Like they'll they'll help you figure it out at the post office. But man, getting a a postcard from Greece out, you know, listen, I was thinking while I was traveling. (laughs) I'm so terrible. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny too is that no one knows anybody's addresses anymore. So I'm actually going to have to gather those, but you're absolutely right. I have, I just was not thinking of that. That's a good plan for the future. Well, you have to check all of them, but a lot of times our speaker friends are listed on like the national speakers association website. So uh, yeah, they all have a a directory, right? So you check that and you could see whether that's accurate. Um, I also look on the bottom of people's emails. If they send out a weekly email, Um, sometimes that's, that works. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, whether people update it, whether, you know, with the PO box or whatever, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, you could tell them it's a surprise. You're, you're collecting email. They're going to ask you if you're getting married and having a baby. You know, it's like, why else do you ask? I will be requesting a gift from you shortly. <laughs> right. You're like, no, no, nothing like that. Nothing like that. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. My, my office is at, at the World Trade Center. And so sometimes I will get mail there. It's not where I formally have things mailed, but they'll call me and say, hey, we have a package for you. And I'm like, from who? And they'll say, like, it's from Greece. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let me come down and get it. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's a cool address. Good for you. It's for a cool address. It's a very cool address that you have that. And, and not just be in New York City, but in the World Trade Center. So it's, I, you. it's one of my favorite questions now as we're wrapping up a little bit yeah. towards that part of the, the interview. Um, it's really been a fun conversation. So if we're reconnecting a year from now, and I'm thrilled that you and I are in, in touch online in various communities, um, if, but we're, you know, reconnecting a year from now and we are reflecting on all of your successes from the previous year, what are we going to be celebrating? My best selling book and my sold out speaking tour, um, celebrating that book because, uh, that's, you know, that's one of the advantages of forced downtime right now is I can actually get that done. <laughs> yeah. 
It's the next, it's the next evolution. It's the next evolution. And what's the focus going to be? Well, it's taking self-directed empowerment um, and, and demonstrating it more broadly so that every single human being can use it. Um, it's not just for business, it's really for living, right? And how we approach the world and politics and social good and, and really um, showing up as human beings in a very powerful way. Very cool. And, I, and this work that you're doing with Imperia sounds amazing that you have this incubator for women across seven continents. Like, yeah. what, are your, what are your thoughts for what the, what's going to have happened like mm-hmm. in the past tense a year from now for that amazing community? Well, a year from now, we will have finished our second cohort. We're finishing up the first one right now. It's a virtual cohort. It's, it's 27, 28 women from 17 countries on six continents, um, which is pretty good for a first go. And so the second one we're hoping to hit, we've got to find those scientists in Antarctica. Um, but the idea really is to have that be... Of the foundational community of a global movement for women. Um, you know, there, there's something that we're doing in this incubator that's not really being done. And it's, it's addressing the unique aspects of leadership that women face globally. And we are much more alike than we are different. And so by addressing those things that are, that are core inside of us as women, as leaders, um, it's really making a difference, you know, and we're, we're hearing things like, I like the woman I'm becoming. Um, I didn't know I could do this. It's like, it's really powerful stuff. And so the idea is that, you know, one year from now will be two cohorts, but five years from now will be a booming global community of women. Wow. That's, that's really incredible. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing the stories that come from all those amazing connections and, also, for a first year out, having that kind of diversity, geography, and experience, yeah, uh, kudos to you. A lot of times when we're creating something, we, we tend to attract people who are very much like us, mm. and it's hard to then deviate to that diversity. Yeah. Yeah. If you start yeah. with diversity, then they're all going to continue to bring in people, and that's, that's really amazing. It's the work you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. And, you know, and we did it, it was all word of mouth, like word got around the world to women doing great things. And it just, I, I was shocked, you know, I was really shocked that that was the response that we got and uh, I'm really proud of it. So, you know, and thankfully it's virtual, so we're not being slowed down right now. Um, so we're trying to really beef up things and, and, you know, create some kind of a, a virtual summit. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it could be really powerful for the future. Very cool. So how can people, Jennifer, find you and follow your work? Sure. So the easiest way is my website, jenniferianolo.com. And I know you'll spell that for them <laughs> in the show notes. Um, and then for the incubator, it is imperia.global. So we have one of the new fancy URLs that really excited me. So imperial.global, is the, that's the link. That's really cool. Yeah. For what you're doing, it makes so much sense. Isn't it perfect? We were so excited to find that. So yeah. it's imperia.global. And, uh, you know, when we announce the next cohort, we uh, women will be able to apply. Well, we will put all those links in the show notes, as well as links to your LinkedIn and your Twitter and your books on Amazon. Um, I didn't mention the name of your second, your, your original book, your first book, The Gilded Fork, Entertaining at Home, A Year of Dinner Parties. Boy, Jennifer, you are my kind of people. I'm so glad we had this conversation. <laughs> it's got Thank wine you. pairings in there too and beer pairings. So <laughs> that's we awesome. We all the bases on those. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me and stay safe where you are. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to see each other in person soon. (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jennifer. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 193. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as nearly 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. Are you tired of being on really bad Zoom calls? I mean, maybe even the ones you've hosted haven't always worked out the way you'd like. I'm hosting a free weekly virtual happy hour to share best practices for creating community connections through virtual events and having fun doing it. Every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern through the end of May, you can join me by signing up at nomorebadzoom.com. That's right, nomorebadzoom.com. Hope you can join us. If you enjoyed this episode with Jennifer, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.